Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 Horror Watch List, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Christopher Allender and Marcos Gabriel are the writer-director duo behind The Old Waves, a fun and richly textured story about a young journalist who ventures into the jungles of Mexico to investigate a story of sorcery and healing, only to get kidnapped by a group of locals who claim her to be demonically possessed. Possessions, witchcraft, demons, and snakes, The Old Ways was not only a beautifully told story, but just a gleefully fun film. The Old Ways is now streaming on Netflix and was one of the top-watched movies on the platform the week it came out, which makes sense as it was definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. We uh, did the standard interview questions, but also geeked out on horror quite a bit, and I even whipped out my Aztec death whistle at one point. Anyway, please enjoy this fun and informative conversation with Christopher Allender and Marcos Gabriel. All right, Chris, Marcos, great to see you guys. How's it going? It's great. Great. Fantastic. Thank you. Good, good. So I uh, really, really enjoyed the old ways. I thought there was there was so much that was unique and different about it, but it also seemed to touch on some, you know, kind of established horror tropes, but in a very new, different, unique way. I mean, I guess I'm curious, how do you guys, in terms of horror subgenres, how would you categorize this movie? Romantic comedy. Yes. Uh, documentary. Um, horror subgenres. I mean, I guess it's it's a bit of an exorcism movie okay. and a like folk horror. It's uh, yeah. I was surprised when witch horror when, when reviews <laughs> started coming out. It was people were like, "We're excited about this new witch movie." I was like, "Oh, I guess it's a witch movie." Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it was always a like an exorcism kind of riff. Yeah. Me, but. Yeah, you got lots of witches too. So uh, I guess it's whatever you want. Yeah, and I mean, it feels <laughs> like both genres, both witch movies and exorcism movies, are basically inexhaustible. Like you, the, people just yeah. keep making them. But um, I think when you add the folk element and you integrate all of this like cultural mythology, then you just open up whole new dimensions of cool things that you can do. So I'm curious yeah. how did how did the story come together? Where did this overall idea come from? Well, 
Uh, I'd been trying to think of a movie that we could produce together. Chris and I, we've known each other for a long, long time and we have similar interests and, and things that we're attracted to uh, for movies. And I'd been wanting to kind of explore an exorcism space, but told from a different cultural point of view. So I was born in Puerto Rico and I knew it'd be really exciting to do something from like a Latin or Hispanic point of view. My mother told me some stories of her growing up on the island of Puerto Rico of, of brujas and of different spiritual cleansings and very, I was raised very Catholic and these things were so far uh, out of reach from where I kind of uh, grew up culturally. And so when I heard these stories from my mom, I was like, whoa, that's amazing. And it kind of took hold. And, you know, over time, we just kept developing it and, and trying to think of all the exciting possibilities, you know, in there, like you said, it's an inexhaustible source is the exorcism story, but you know, a lot of them kind of fall into the same kind of tropes, fall into the same kind of rhythms of, you know, a Catholic priest comes in and yep. says things and here comes the Bible and and all that stuff. So we knew we could challenge ourselves to do something really uh, different with the material. And that was really the genesis of it. Just tell a story uh, from a different point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And as I was watching it, I realized I feel like we've never seen a non-Christian exorcism on camera. I can't think of any anyway. I mean, you can you could argue maybe Angel Heart, maybe elements yeah. of uh Serpent and the Rainbow, but other than that. I'm trying to think like was the wailing? Remember the wailing? That yeah. was yeah. was that was that an exorcism? They had like cool ritualistic things, but I don't remember if that was that could have been like a, would that a be a Buddhist exorcism since it was where yeah, was that? Perhaps. Maybe. Um, yeah, you know, and that was fun. And the fun was researching Brujas and Santeria and all that stuff where it's like the practitioner, and Chris has a lot more to say about this, but the practitioner is really the one who determines the process. There's not really a guidebook for it. It's really, you know, what uh, what, what are some of the things we, we found in the research, Chris? Well, I mean, that was really liberating because we um, weren't, I mean, at first it's kind of daunting because it's like, well, what is it? You know, what, how is this, how does this work? Um, but then we would just read and read and read and Google like crazy and talk to different people. Um, almost everybody we talked to of like Latinx heritage has a pretty close story to something, you know, like my mom or my aunt or my, my cousin, or it's always something like that. So we got lots of just feedback and, and input from lots of different directions. And the more we learned, the more we realized that we actually had the freedom to pick and choose what we wanted, because that's exactly what all of these brujos and brujas do. Um, we would start to find things that we really wanted to have in the movie and um, from different cultures uh, throughout Latin America and Central America and Southern America and um, the Caribbeans and what we really then had to do was just focus it in on where this would happen. Like mm -hmm. what was a good place geographically where all of the things we wanted to exist, um, made sense. So we landed on the area of Veracruz, which is on the kind of Southern, Southern little boot of Mexico on the Caribbean side. So it's right where, the kind of northern edge of the Mayan empire overlapped with the southern edge of Aztec. And then you have the Afro-Caribbean influence mm -hmm. coming across the water. And you have mm -hmm. obviously Catholic and Spanish influence from um, 
Colombian uh, imperialism. And um, we uh, just were really able to zero in on that area and pick and choose these uh, specific influences that we wanted to to flesh out the story and the uh, kind of the richness of everything. So it was it was really cool to be able to not have that dogma weighing over our head of like, well, it has to be like this because this is the way it is in the Bible. And it's like our, our Bruja would use pieces from the Bible, but you'd also use, you know, they've got goats in their village. So right. that's what they're going to use for, you know, nourishment. And um, they just, we they just kind of like piece it together based on their experience and their um, history. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of also where this other element of the the story that has this red book, that we think of as it's kind of like the Bible in our um, movie, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's a one of a kind document that's been handed down from generation to generation, um, almost like a family cookbook or something like that, where everybody's penciled in. Well, I, you know, I saw this or uh, so-and-so came in with a stomach ache and I gave her this and that made her feel better. But, you know, she threw up for five days or yeah. whatever that is. Um, a very dangerous family cookbook. <laughs> it's the worst family cookbook. But um, it really um, spoke to all the different influences that we could inject yeah. into it and, and, and kind of do whatever we wanted in a way uh, and just try to make the most exciting and fresh experience for the audience that we could. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was largely like the mythology that you guys created was an amalgam of like actual folk myths and and certain religious practices, just all in its own, you know, very unique brew, so to speak. Another thing we did a lot was look into anthropological um, history and museum type uh, literature and stuff like that and look at actual artifacts that were found in Aztec and Mayan ruins. uh, And use that uh like for instance they would take like royal children's skulls and they would elongate, elongate them. them yeah Ooh. um which is and they have the skulls the real skulls you know they found in in, in tombs and stuff like they that elongate and them it's yeah it's almost like have you seen in, in africa they do that sometimes with the neck yep they've they've stretched out or, or in other cultures they do like foot binding and things um so the skulls are horrifying looking and we were, and we, we, so we, we saw that and that was really inspiring. And then we saw, um, they also would drill into their teeth. Um, and you can, they still have the teeth you can find, they have them now where there were jewels, um, and stones and stuck into their teeth, almost like grills. And, um, <laughs> and we saw other types of headdresses and things like that, that were really interesting. And we, you know, some people might think that, um, those were invented by a priest or a cleric or whoever. Um, but we like, we just tried to work the opposite direction and say, well, what if somebody saw, like they saw a deity or a demon or something that looked like that. And this has all been in an effort to recreate a quote unquote real hmm. uh, presence. So that all worked as our um, fodder for building what the actual demon um would look like and we would base it on all of that type of anthropological type stuff that really just helped it was just great you know once you could find something to latch onto, you could really focus on it and steer the ship in a direction and it was easy to get everybody on board and 
and to follow along and, and, and riff on it and, and explore those uh, different ideas. Really yeah, and the cool. script really, you know, it was really a living document for a lot of this stuff. So a draft was written and that would start like our, you know, explorations into like, let's do a little more research here. Let's find something else here. And then we'd find something really cool. Like in the movie, there's something called the death whistle, which was something we found through our research. I have one. I have one. You have one? Yeah. Heck yeah. yeah. I'll bring it uh, out after well, in like two seconds. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so we we saw people playing that online and we we're like, oh my God, let's put this in the script somewhere. So uh, we not only integrated into the script right away, but then pretty much instantly called like Ben Lovett, our composer that we knew we were going to be using because we're good friends with Ben from a number of years and was like, hey, Ben, you're going to be <laughs> finding ways to incorporate this sound into the soundtrack. So really like from, I mean, it started in the script, but the script was always absorbing new information that was then leading into the into the movie. So that was really thrilling and exciting to um, keep finding ways to make it authentic and make it real. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, throughout the course of the research and writing process, mm -hmm. were there any, I mean, with the subject matter of things relating to demons and witches and, and, and curses and spells, you can go down certain dark corridors and things can get a little scary during the research yeah. process. Was there any either documents or anything that you guys came across where you were like, okay, we can't go any further. We got to, um, we got to chill with the there research. There was certainly, I mean, there's some rituals we didn't end up putting in the movie. There's something that is in, um, I think there's even a documentary on Netflix about it right now called John the Healer or something like that. But it, it, this guy in South America that does eye scrapings Ooh. with like a, with like a blade and he'll scrape the eye uh, for clarity and cleansing. And we thought for a little while, like maybe we'll put this in the movie and then realize like, I don't know. I mean, there's so much other body trauma and horror yeah. in this movie. We thought we'll probably lose the audience. Um, if we go this far, uh, certainly felt like icky when we were doing it, as we looked into, there's a psychic surgery sequence in the movie, which, uh, ha reveals this strange kind of thing in from inside of her body. And, you know, in the movie, there's some, like demon teeth in there, but that was certainly a bit of research that we went down the wrong rabbit holes looking at like, what no. was that called, uh, Chris? Or, oh or, yeah, these were- um, me, Not melanoma, what are they called? Yeah, <laughs> um, we, these are loosely based on these like cancerous kind of, yeah. um, uh, you know, non-dangerous, growths that they've found inside of people that they pull out and the DNA is in there and it actually would grow teeth, teeth and, and hair and, everything. and, and, and it's, you know, uh, horrifying. And, um, God, I forgot the name of that. Um, I know something, like a, oh, I don't it's almost the word. same word as melanoma, but it's, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, Google it. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> Google teeth sack. Yeah, I dare you. <laughs> turn, turn, turn off safe search and uh, oh, Google God. that. Um, but you know, it's funny too. It's like, I don't know if there was a lot of stuff necessarily that scared us in the research. Quite the contrary, because we'd be like more thrilled when we were like, oh my God, this is really creepy. This happened. Or this ritual is really crazy. But um you know, as it started coming to life and as our prop master started making some of the things that were in the movie, that certainly like his corner of the set was terrifying and they were full of bones and like really weird things that certainly felt uh, like it had a presence to it. Yeah. And but, you know, it, it was so funny, man. Like he'd go out to lunch and get a <laughs> rotisserie chicken for lunch and yeah. eat it and then. 
there'd be a necklace made of chicken bones. And you're like, oh, all right. <laughs> That's where that came from. Resourceful. <laughs> yeah, that was oh, Derek. Yeah. He was yeah. great. Yeah, he's, awesome. from, he's from uh, New Mexico, so he, he brought all kinds of uh, coyote skulls. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Random <laughs> stuff that he probably found on the side of the road. Uh, very yeah. res- resourceful guy. Put it all on sure. the screen. Yeah, that was a, yeah, that was the little haunted room. Uh, where oh yeah. His, his gack was. Yeah. He actually did while we were shooting, he answered a Craigslist ad because someone was giving away, I think for free, this horrifying like sculpture that they had in the yard that spewed, like it was designed to spew blood or something. <laughs> and he was so excited, but the person was giving it away because it was like, the headline was like haunted thing. I can't have this around anymore. <laughs> Please someone take it. And he was like, Oh my God, I got to go grab this. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> did he take it? He did. Is oh, it yeah, in his house it. now? Like what's happening? Yeah. Whoa. I mean, it was on he the di- set for a while and then he, he died. Uh, R.I.P. He died (laughs) after killing his gerbils. Yeah, wow, that's pretty insane. That is uh, unfortunately true. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I feel like the the cool thing about I think dealing particularly with with Mexico and Mexican culture is they're way more straightforward about talking about things like ghosts and demons and afterlife and things like that than most you know Americans are. I mean, you watch most American Mm -hmm. ghost movies; it's very you don't see or hear about the ghosts to like a third of the way through because they have to get over this sort of hump yeah. of, you know, believability. Whereas you watch these amazing horror movies coming out of Southeast Asia. Like you were talking about, um, who are you talking about? The whaling. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I think is Malaysian, but the horror that comes yeah. out of Malaysia and Indonesia and even Korea, I mean, culturally in Indonesia, they talk about demons and ghosts like yeah. it is in every part present. of everyday life. Yeah. So their ghost movies, they just start off with, shit coming out of the walls and the ghosts are visible and yeah and all of that but i think when you have like something like mexican culture where they they do talk about brujas and spells and, and demons and things like that so i thought that that um from that perspective it uh, it's a more open playing field for a horror movie it feels like oh certainly i mean there is like everybody you know culturally you know what it is if someone just says oh i need to do a cleansing or i need to get the house cleansed or blessed or you know sometimes there's a ritual with an egg i mean those are things that just are part of the um language and i remember that was one of the things that was fascinating when my mom would talk about her growing up in puerto rico like there would be all like if, if something happened maybe someone put a curse on you or a hex on you or someone would find like dried grapes on their front porch and they'd say somebody just cursed me and then someone else would say i think the dog might have taken the grapes from the garbage (laughs) but but it was like a sicilian it wasn't a stretch to go like or perhaps someone might be cursing you with this thing so i know it, it that's what was so exciting and vibrant and really the idea is you know, those kind of thoughts and beliefs have disappeared greatly um, recently. And that's what, to me, that's one of the connotations of the old ways. It's like these things exist. And in our movie, there are people who practice ways to uh, fight against it or to stand against it. But those ways are going to disappear the less, the more we don't believe in them and the more we let them kind of fall away. So really that was, you know, at the core of it is a character who has been greatly distanced from their culture, who's been greatly distanced from believing any of these things. And even when the evidence is right in front of her, she has a really hard time Mm -hmm. coming to grips with it. 
and then um but it's it's real in our movie yeah yeah, yeah. and for for your aspiring filmmakers i mean this is i think the perfect example of that write what you know adage where it's like marcus has never been kidnapped and you no. know uh, as far as i know uh and uh forced to drink goat milk and all this stuff but it's coming from a kind of a personal insight or a personal place yeah. or yeah. a anecdote from his family that stuck with him for many many years and and then you just start springboarding off that and combining it with things you do know and or things mm -hmm. tropes and twists and stuff like that but it's a it's a i think a great example of that um that you hear that when you're young and you're like well you know well nobody wants to see a movie about ordering groceries during the pandemic right that's not the right what you know that we want to see <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. um but find that thing that doesn't probably doesn't even seem special to you till you're a little bit older anyway because it's something you grew up with mm -hmm, and you realize right. the more people you meet you're like oh this is different mm -hmm. <laughs> about me or and there's a universe universality that you start to see from right. it too so it's yeah. kind of you find how those two <clears throat> sides can kind of come and meet together in the middle and you've got something hopefully worth um telling yeah just yeah, having these different perspectives point. and different cultural viewpoints i think just in fresh it refreshes the genre so nice. Oh, yeah. And like our, I mean, you know, so there was so much that we tried to imbibe, imbibe into the script. There was so much that our producer, uh, one of our producers, Krista Barini, who's from Guatemala, she brought to the script. And then once you like open that up a little further into our, you know, uh, makeup artist who um, is Latina into our, our into our amazing Latinx cast and you just give enough hooks in that everyone can then bring their own story or something true to them to it. It was just so awesome. And that was one of the great things about Chris as a director is just how receptive and collaborative he was across all spectrums. Like I know, because I've been friends with him since we've been 19 years old. I mean, now we're in our forties, we have kids and all that stuff, not together. Uh, but we have, you know, grown up together. So I'm, I've always known how collaborative Chris can be and is. And when you see that, operating on the actor's level, on the art direction level, on the props with the cinematographer. It's really amazing to just receive a lot of different ideas and people who say, I want to make this uh, my own. And that's what, you know, filmmaking is really, it's the ultimate collaborative experience. And yeah. it, it works best when you bring together artisans and craftsmen and, and artists that you trust uh, that have a point of view and you let them do their thing and you guide them in the right direction and then you see what happens when everyone's doing their best work yeah yeah i feel like it's so important to be able to create a collaborative environment on set and in every stage yeah. of production pre you know production and even and even post so everybody can bring their sort of oh yeah and certainly when you're making an indie movie like you're no one's doing it for the money right so the only reason people signed on is because like they read the script and they were like this could be cool and i think i have some ideas for it and that's why i'll do it for very little money yeah and then you have to embrace that and you have to go like okay great like i i agree with your point of view here and i think we can go in this point of view here and you have to be collaborative especially at this level otherwise like why why is anyone doing it yeah, <laughs> yeah and for them payment for them a lot of times is just the creative freedom or yeah. the, or the ability to have their voice stand out or exactly um you know be a 
be a department head for the first time or mm-hmm. whatever it might mm-hmm. be, but they're they're getting an opportunity that is more than CAC because <laughs> we didn't have that right uh, yeah. for them. So, well, how did the movie get made? Can you talk about like after you guys had the the script written? What was the process for getting the movie yeah. made? Well, well, we um, we have a production company in Burbank um, called Soapbox Films mm-hmm. where we. Um, we mostly do um, advertising, um, commercials, and marketing for mm-hmm. for the studios for feature films, and um, it's close to. I, mean, I think it's 19 years old now. We we've been building it since 2002, and um, it's 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 a pretty big place now. We've got about 50 employees. We have a small soundstage, editing bays, um, audio. Uh, storyboard artist all, all this stuff and um we use it every day for making big commercials where we spend you know the budget of our movie in a day <laughs> a lot of times <laughs> um maybe, times. Uh, sometimes more so and um yeah but the dream has always been to make movies and and make our own projects so as we started the company started snowballing and kind of getting all these different resources and, and talented people and vendor relationships and crew relationships. Um, we've just tried to cultivate the best people and the best uh, opportunities that we can. And, and I've produced, I raised some money a few years ago and I've produced, um, I've, I've, well, we've, we've done quite a few films either as executive producers or producers in some capacity, but we raised our own financing and did three films back to back to back um one was the win the first one was the wind mm-hmm. which is also available on netflix now um the second one was body at, uh body at brighton rock directed written directed by roxanne benjamin mm-hmm. who you may know from lots of cool things like yeah, vhs yeah. and um we did another movie called wildcat uh that just came out um through paramount and and saban films and that one was the first time we had made a movie, really the first time we'd done an independent film uh, on our soundstage, not on location. Um, and because most indie films, it's just like you got to go somewhere and, and film it because you don't, you don't have the money to do it on a stage. And building a, a set is very expensive. Uh, renting the space is very expensive. So we've we've always, I mean, the wind was out in the middle of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Body at Brighton Rock was on the side of a mountain in um, mm-hmm. Idlewild. Um, we've done just all over the place, and it's 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 always extremely challenging. Um, and there's a lot of uncontrollable factors, especially when we don't have the money to control the factors like weather or um, travel expenses are really. High. Uh, take a big chunk out of a small budget yeah, um, or just additional time, you know, like every, you have to make sure you're getting yeah. all your pages done every day. And if any setback happens, you're like completely thrown when you're on location as well. Yeah. Even the wind, which was like probably the best case scenario for a movie that was out in the middle of nowhere. Like mm-hmm. we, we really only had to drive like 40, 30, 40 minutes from where we were staying in Santa Fe every day but that's 30 or 40 minutes in, 30, 40 minutes out. Right. You got to kind of like unpack everything when you get to the place. You had to, we had to walk half a mile from where you parked. And you lose, I mean, conservatively two hours a day, but you probably lose more than that. And that over a week, that's easily 
Gesundheit. Thank you. Pardon <laughs> over me. a week, <laughs> over a week, that's a day, you know, yeah. um, and on a small uh, schedule, especially on a, you know, if you're doing 15 or 15, 18 days, sometimes on these, on these movies that you're talking eight pages a day. If you lose a week, if you lose a day a week, that's eight pages of stuff you could have filmed. So yeah. that's all a long way of saying when we were, the last film we did was called Wildcat and it was a kind of a chamber drama, um, one, essentially one room. So we built that on our stage and we were making this film um, and it was just, it was the best experience. Mm. Uh, it's like, okay, Charlie Chaplin figured this out a hundred years ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is how you make, this is how you make movies. And, um, you know, we'd show up at seven o'clock call time. We'd have our first shot off by seven eighteen. You know, at the end of the day, you throw a tarp over the camera and lock the door and walk away and you're good to go. And we were just getting so much more, so many more takes, so much more material, so much more time with the actors. Um, you weren't burnt out at the end of the week. Because mm-hmm. um, of the soundstage. Yeah, we weren't going yeah. into overtime every night. And because every time you go into overtime, then you got to add turnaround if you're following just basic human decency rules. Like people need time <laughs> to sleep. Yeah. A, an on location film. Um, you start like Monday, you start maybe you have 6 a.m. call time. But because you're like losing time every day for even if your main crew wraps out, there's still other people like grips and PAs and people have to stay and make sure everything gets shut down and cleaned up and Mm -hmm. taken away. So your call time doesn't get to happen until after they're all done for the next day. So by the end of the week, your call time might be noon and you're shooting until midnight. And then by the time you get home on Saturday morning, it is, you know, you get home at one or two in the morning and then you sleep all day, you lose that whole day. So you're just destroyed by the end of the movie because you're just losing sleep and you're losing time. You yeah. don't have the weekend. To, to, you don't have any time to prep. And um, so Marcus and I looked at each other while we were making Wildcat and we're like, mm-hmm. man, we got we got this. We got to write a movie that we can shoot here and we got to reuse these walls and we got to figure <laughs> out what we can do to make, to do this because those three films that I produced back to back were all first time directors. And there's just so many, um, just so many X factors that are coming at you at, at any, on any film. And when you add to the, when you add to it that you're a first time director, it's just like, you want to, you want to find every opportunity you can to eliminate things that are going to sink the ship. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we own this stage is a small stage, but we owned it, you know, it's there and we can, we can build on it and we can prep on it and nobody's going to kick us out. And so Marcus just like, went into the other room and started writing a movie yeah. that we could shoot on the stage. And I think I, my plan was to like quickly write a draft. And if I could do it fast enough, we could just like start production right after the <laughs> film wrap, which of, of course wasn't going to happen, but it was very much like the excitement of seeing it and how we could do it and uh, pairing it up with this idea that had been slowly kind of gestating in my mind for a while was like, okay, wait, hold on, wait, I can see it. I can see it. So we start at first we thought, okay, we'll just do it in one room and we'll spend a lot of time and then we'll we'll shut down production and we'll change the colors of the walls and then we'll shoot another scene and we'll have five different rooms, but it'll all be the same room. And we had a lot of ambitious ideas on how to do it. Uh, we ended up doing it in a totally 
different way <laughs> once we yeah. got going into it. But yeah, it was it was so thrilling to see the movie, you know, being on the other side and being like, okay, cool, we can we can totally pull this off in a different way and and make it our own and make it pretty exciting. So old ways was shot primarily in the soundstage. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Twenty two so of twenty five days. Is that right? 20, wow. Three. 23 of 25 days. I could have sworn no, you we shot did. on location. I was going to ask, like, what was it like shooting in the <laughs> jungle? <laughs> yeah, we did for mosquitoes? two days, for a couple of days. Yeah. It was, it was great because we only did two days. Um, yeah, it was. <laughs> wow. Um, it was, um, it was great. We were, you know, we, we, being on a stage and, and the other thing that after being, after having produced quite a few indie films, in various capacities, um, the thing I wanted most as a first time, I mean, I, we, we made a movie when we were in college, but this is our first real movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I basically would have traded anything for more days. Just the more days yeah. you can get the better because you can get away every now and then with six, seven, eight page days or even 10 page days if it's a bunch of dialogue or something. But every time, we get to the climax of a film and you try to squeeze it into a half a day. Yeah. Um, it just sucks. <laughs> it ruins the movie and you waited yeah. all this time for this set piece or whatever it is. And you know, you got to start shooting it like it's the Avengers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like they do one shot in a day yeah. sometimes. Right. And then we'd right. have, I mean, not only Which that, not only the <laughs> climax, but you know, we had lots of animals in this movie. We had a huge snake sequence. So like our own experiences had told us like, okay, we're going to have to spend an entire day on just this one scene that might just be a few pages or a page <laughs> and really that's the advantage i mean we knew that going in that we needed to schedule more and more time to pull it all off and yeah. then just you know i thank you so much for the kind words on not knowing it was shot on a stage Job because shot. all of it all of it is pretty hard to pull off um because you don't get anything for free so on a location you get environments for free you get everything you get everything so when you shoot on a stage, uh, Chris and the DP, Adam Lee, really had a lot of discussions about like, how do you shoot on, how do you light it so it feels like we're on location? How, will, where will we put the camera? You know, like you have the ability on a stage to move any light you want and move a wall if you want to. And, but there's all of those things add up to the audience's mind is like, some things aren't working and it doesn't feel right. So mm. there was a very purposeful intent on not moving walls and not doing a lot of specialty lighting um, because you'd yeah. want to find, you know, how did Apocalypse Now get shot? You know, <laughs> like, how do you find a shot in a jungle? And then how do you also create? I mean, we had haze going all the time. Our whole our crew pre-COVID already had masks on oh, all man. the time because we had haze going all the time. We had different things before we'd take a set, before we'd roll cameras. Someone would shake these things in the air and create those little particles that float in the air in front of the camera. All that stuff is like free on location. And when you're on a stage, it can be very sterile and very like, yeah. so we'd make sure everyone was misted up and sweaty and <laughs> you felt it. I mean, when you walked around totally. that set, it did feel like you were somewhere lost in the jungle and that was remarkable. Yeah. And the level of detail that that set had, I was sure you found somewhere just way off the beaten path, either <laughs> somewhere in South, South yeah. or Central America and just yeah. stayed there. But yeah, I mean, could you talk about the the the, the production design was beautiful. Mm -hmm. There was like an economy yeah. of kind of color 
but their yeah. the the main bruja kind of shaman was her look was so cool and so striking mm-hmm. and iconic and it was not over the top but it was super powerful so i mean i feel like there was such nuance to production design um can you talk about how your how you worked with your production designers and what their approach was particularly Absolutely. on a lower budget because it just the production design just sang oh great awesome. thanks Thank yeah you. i mean like he said originally we conceived this as a we would build one room and redress it like five times. Um, to, and it was a good idea, I guess. Uh, but it would have felt, um, you know, very small, know, small and redundant. And um, we learned a lot on that, that previ- <clears throat> previous film that was a, like a single room mm-hmm. movie. And we weren't trying to hide that it was, you know, it was, that was a whole idea. Like there was a person being held captive. Um, but in this one, we really wanted to just try to avoid it feeling like we were on a looking at a proscenium. I wanted there to always feel like there was just as much life on the other side of the lens as there was on the side that you could see. Um, so when we were interviewing production designers, um, one of them came to us and said, I've got an idea for how we can still only have four walls because that's all we could afford. That's that's one of the most expensive parts of putting up like actual real walls, walls because <laughs> you have to bring in carpenters and there's wood and you know there's just materials and stuff. They got to be secure. They're very heavy. They can't fall over. You know. Yeah. yeah. And they got to look good. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of labor costs and material costs for that. So he's like, I've got an idea how we can just have four walls. We can reuse the like the four pieces you have from your other movie. Um, but I'm going to build the entire complex, uh, all the rooms that you, well, we had to kind of combine one of them, but basically everything that's called for in the script as one standing, uh, thing. And he's like, he'd worked on a lot of actually a a surprising amount of movies that were in a jungle, like Mm -hmm. one of the Anaconda movies. I think, uh, he did one of the, um, like one of those random dungeon and dragons movies that had like the Wayans brothers or something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Have not yeah, seen that. Um, and he's like, you know, I can't remember which one. Huge set piece that's like in a, I don't know if it's a sinkhole or it's just like this giant cave hole in the earth. Huge, you know, like four stories tall and mud sliding down it and all kinds of stuff. Really expensive, you know, million dollars or whatever just for this set. And he's like, I, it took us a month to build it. All the labor, all the wood, all the infrastructure. It's a huge thing when you look at like behind it it looks it's like a giant scaffolding scaffolding structure and he's like at the end of the day all you saw on camera was the vines and some of the rocks and stuff and i he's like i've always thought like that was so wasteful (laughs) or like that's a wasteful way to do it um so what he did is he, he built a he took a couple of our walls that we had but then everything else was um like tricks um you know if this one wall was going to have a a shelf on it like a big shelf with all these jars of like you know frog eyes or whatever um he's like you're not going to see the wall like right even if it's a see-through shelf like uh you know if it doesn't have a back to it like you're not going to see the wall really there's going to be all this junk on it uh, so what he would do there you get you get a big shelf fill it with junk and then hang, um, he would get for free somewhere. There's some place where you can get free um, coffee bags. 
I guess mm. you go to coffee stores or something. I don't know. Like they throw them out. He would just get big. They're like burlap sacks and he would dye them brown or something and just hang them behind the shelf. And then he'd throw some like vines and just other junk he found on the side of the road. And, and you had no idea that you weren't looking at um, a wall because you're not, you were never going to look at the wall. <laughs> you know, right. You're going to look at all the cool little jars of, of, of crud and a magic ingredients and stuff like that so <laughs> he made us like rethink walls too because there's a you know in in the main room where christina our main characters held most of the time he decided what if this one wall was made of bamboo sticks and was more like a cage almost and that was mind-blowing because a it just saved on a lot of materials b we could now see two now that he designed this entire complex you could see through the wall into the rest of the complex the rest of the time and in a horror movie, that is like such a gift because mm. you do look for things in the shadows or in oh, the yeah. corners of the shot. And to be able to see that, that forced us again, like to rethink elements of the story and go like, hold on, does this scene even work anymore? Because now she can see it. Okay, we got to rewrite that. Or, oh my God, isn't this awesome? Now when someone's standing on the other side of this door, that's also kind of see-through through this mesh, we can actually see someone physical there and not just like hear them on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, it was such a brilliant notion that he had uh, that I don't think he'd been able. He he said it was something he thought of for years, and mm. he just had never, because you wouldn't do that on a real movie. On a real movie, you'd be like, just build the walls, right. <laughs> put the carpenters to work. But he had that theory, and it was like brilliant. Yeah. And it was or one that would like mess your mind up when you first started seeing it come together, and it was totally just like we were talking about earlier, that element of trust when you bring artists and artisans together, oh, yeah. like you just had to be like, okay, I, I can't see any of this now because right. it was just like hanging palm fronds and like someone would be stuffing newspapers into a lattice and painting them colors. And you're like, what is that a wall? What is that? And it was just texture and feeling and color and tone that through the lens with a little bit of, you know, uh, depth of field there you suddenly were like oh my god that is it's all come to life yeah yeah trust the process it was a real um exercise of a of, of principle that my of another friend of mine that i've been making movies with since since we were like middle school this guy jacob gentry um he has a movie out right now called broadcast signal intrusion um we i produced a movie with him that was like a blade runner ish you know future punk thing nice and in that film we came to the conclusion that like you just can't have enough there's no such thing as too much art department like set design stuff because yeah. you walk onto the set and you see everything all at once and you're like that's a lot of stuff but then when you aim your camera at it all you see is what's in the frustrum of the lens and you have no idea that there's two million books on the left and the right it mm -hmm. might as well not be there so it's like you got to you got to go big and um, yeah, if you're going to, if it, if, the, if that's part of the storytelling is your environment, then you gotta, you almost got to overdo it. It's easy to pull stuff out when you, yeah. when you're looking through the lens and say, Oh, that's yeah. too much. Let's get rid of that weird, you know, Jesus statue that <laughs> is distracting me or whatever. But um, we, we, we just went crazy with the amount of stuff here because the idea was this, this Bruja, she doesn't accept money. Uh, as payment from people she does it for the love of you know helping people or whatever so the villagers would just 
bring her offerings, you know, as yeah. thank you. And she so she's just got this place full of it's a junk farm, basically. So <laughs> our whole art department team, and in particular Bryce, the production designer, would he would just show up every day on set and be like, Look what I, I found this toilet on the side of the street. It was free. Can you believe yeah. it? I was like, Yeah, or I there's can believe the, it. the <laughs> bed so, that Christina is on, like I think in the script, it was just like, oh, a mattress on the ground was what the description was or something like that. And he found this like beautiful wood piece with oh, the, wow. a woven thing. And suddenly again, it was like, well, hold on. If she's strapped to this, it's heavy, but she can move it. Okay, well, hold on. She can drag this around if we want her to and get in different positions. Yeah, that was, was really so awesome. That, that was really great. liberating when we discovered that we basically turned the bed into a... Um, ball and chain yeah so it's like you can move wherever you want good luck running through the jungle with a you know right. 150 pound uh, but again, bed that's like... strapped to you and so it let us get her off the wall mm-hmm. um which yeah. would make it it started it just would it would just start to feel too flat if we were just filming someone up against a wall so it let her it let us get her into the middle of the room and the other side of the room and and it gave us a lot more um variety with these blocking and the staging yeah and again, this is like the beauty of shooting it on our stage was, A, we could see this as it was happening. So as the set's going up or as props are coming in or set dressing's coming in, we can plan around it and make adjustments to it. But also it allowed Chris and Adam and his first AD, Kelsey, an opportunity to literally pre-shoot the movie on like hmm. iPads and cell phones plan out every shot in the actual space. So if you're on location, you're going to show up on the day and be like, okay, yeah, that corner looks good. And this thing, and this is different than the blogging I was thinking. Instead, this was an opportunity to come in there and really just plan shot by shot the entire movie. And yeah, on the day it all changes. And an actor is like, I'm not going to stand there. Why would I look out that window? I'm going to stand over here. And you're like, okay, we'll figure it out. But most of the big uh, things that need to be figured out could be figured out actually in the physical space. Mm. I mean, it'd be like shooting in your childhood home. You know, you'd be like, oh, okay, this is the shower. You go up the ladder and up the ladder, there's the laundry room. So we'll be out the laundry room and then we'll come over here and that's where my playpen is. So that's how we'll do it. Yeah. Um, it was very much like that kind of familiarity with the set. Really, really cool. And I feel like a lot of what you just talked about speaks to the importance of kind of having a fluid relationship with a lot of your collaborators. In other words, being open to new opportunities that present themselves and being malleable enough with how you rewrite certain scenes, like talking about the 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 whole device of the bed turning into a ball and chain, just being, instead of being so rigidly attached to your original conceptions of things, finding sure. the opportunities to be you know, open to, to, to new ideas that present even, you know, bigger, cooler possibilities than you had originally anticipated. I feel like a lot yeah. of people are so just, nope, it's in the script. We're going to do it like this. And this yeah. is my storyboard. And, but I think the f- like fluid collaboration, it sounds like is the name. Yeah. Of the game, oh which yeah. Is in your case. I mean, I do have a lot of friends, filmmaker friends who've been kind of screwed over by storyboards and um, they're scared of them sometimes. Cause they're like, well, we get to set and then everybody says, this is what the storyboard is. And it's like, it's fine. I mean, just do as much planning as you can, because even if you throw it all out, it still was planning. <laughs> like it still helps. Yeah. Who is it that said it, like plans are useless, but the act of planning is completely valuable? Like ab- Roosevelt or somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even mm-hmm. just you know little thing where it's like two, three weeks out, we're able to talk to our uh, stunt choreographer, and she knows where this is going to happen, what kind of wires she's going to need, where she's going to need to 
you know, pin harness points into the ceiling or the ground and all these little things that um, you're not scrambling to answer um, on the day. And, right. And and like you said, yeah, I mean, half the time the actors would show up and be like, ah, the opposite. And like, okay. But it's like, still, you don't have to throw out everything. You throw out half of it or you know sometimes right. storyboards look the same it doesn't matter it wasn't they weren't that drawn that <laughs> right it's like okay well we're spinning everything 180 degrees but it's the same um essentially so mm-hmm. yeah the more yeah. the more you can get in there and then yeah like you said finding those those happy accidents and experimenting on set is what makes it the fun the thing that you know when we were kids we were making movies and that's all you did you didn't plan at all you just right went in the backyard with the, you know, water gun and started <laughs> hosing everybody down. Um, and it gives you the opportunity to do that stuff because you're not panicked when you're not, <laughs> you can show up the set and you've got the like base, the baseline taken care of. And mm-hmm. now you can yeah. riff a little and bit. It's like with, if you have the safety net behind you of, of your actual planning and, and the communication yeah. that comes from that when you're trying to tell, that's another problem. I think a lot of young or, you know, beginning filmmakers have is they've never had to work with a 60 person crew. Right. If they were running the camera and they were holding the microphone with their other hand and doing this, like they've never had to um, explain themselves to so many different people who need, I mean, it was, it's crazy how much work these department heads do, you know, like our uh, wardrobe designer She's had to think out things that I've never, and I haven't. I've produced lots of movies, and I've, I've never really thought about the stuff that they do until I was in all the meetings with her. But you know, there's one pair of clothes basically for our actors, but she doesn't just wear one pair of clothes in the real world. Right. You know, like we have ten, and on day twelve, she's got to be, you know, a bucket of goat milk has to be dumped on her. But on day two, that hasn't happened yet, and but right. she's got blood, and she's got this. So. And she's got to get sweatier and grosser over time. And so she's thought about the like the same way an actor thinks about their their arc. Like this is happening for the wardrobe and this is happening for the makeup and this is happening for the set and this is happening for everything. And you know, those people you can't just show up mm-hmm. and be like, Good luck. Uh, right. Because there's a lot of thought that has to go yeah. on, on their part. And you're just, you know you're just making their lives very difficult and very stressful. If you can't give them as much information as possible because they've got a lot to do. They've got to go shop for it. You know, she would come to me and be like, do you want 11 or 13 shirts? And I'm like, I've never, like anytime I've made a movie, I got one, you know, (laughs) like like, we get more than one. That's amazing. Um, So I'm like, I don't even know how to answer that question, but let's, let's talk, let's talk it through and see. Um, because that's amazing that we're going to have multiples of anything. And then we could have had 22 or 26 or, you know, like yeah. it wasn't, we could have had way more. If yeah. we, and then low. every single one of those, like, well, well, what I'm like, well, can I have 13? And she's like, yeah, but then you can't have, we can only have two of this right thing right. for this stunt yeah. scene. Do you think you can get away with only like just des- destroying one shirt for right. that scene? I'm like, yeah, sure. If I can have thirteen for you know or whatever, but you're just bar- you know you're beg borrowing stealing from everyone. Yeah, you need people with these item. systems thinking on your on your crew. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So last few questions. Um, I feel when when you're working 
on an indie movie that um, that's relatively low budget, where would you say are the areas to invest? Because clearly there's certain areas, certain things you have to skimp on, but then there's other things in order for the movie to really work that you have to really invest in. Mm. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's time. I mean, because we've I've made a lot of movies that were like 12 days, 18 days, 20 days. Um, like, get as many days <laughs> as you can. Yeah. Um, mm. And try to get five-day weeks instead of six-day weeks. Um yeah. That that is the biggest cuz that's time is money, you know, you're spending you know, $10,000 a day, $100,000 a day, mm-hmm. a million dollars a day, but if whatever that is, um can you shave 10% off every day somehow and get one more day or two more days? Uh yeah. you'll be really really happy <laughs> the more cuz it's really just getting that page count down like if you're shooting three or four pages a day, you can actually do some really great stuff. If you're shooting six, eight, ten pages every single yeah, day, just you're, gonna, stuff. you're just getting footage, you know, <clears throat> and you'll have some good stuff. I'm, I mean, I'm not doubting it. I've seen and people have done amazing films in a few days, but um, it's all going to it's going to those extra days are going to turn into more takes, better takes, more rest, better prep. Um, less angry people. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it'll be everything. Um, so if it means, Hey, can we get away? Is there a way to shoot this with a smaller crew? That might be worth it. If it means you get two, three more days instead yeah. of 10, 12 more people, because every person that shows up is, you know, even on the low end, a couple hundred bucks yeah. a day. Plus, um, the food you have to feed them. Plus if you're on location, you have to pay for some place for them to stay. You have to fly them out there or drive them out there per diems. Yada, yada, yada. It just keeps going on and on. And, um, I couldn't have been, I mean, I'd take more, but this was the first time I'd had 25 days on a movie and it was a whole different, Mm. whole different world. And you said five day weeks, not six day weeks. It's important for people to have two days of rest. Yeah, because I mean, especially if you're on location, because that one day of rest isn't a day of rest. Like you, or you, like it's not a day of recuperation. It's like right. you're sleeping, you know, on Saturday because you're probably going late. Like we didn't, we only went in overtime once or twice on this. Oh wow! Um, but most most indie films, especially if you've got a few amount of days, how are you going to get all your? How are you going to get eight pages in a day? You're going to go three hours late <laughs> right. and then you go three hours late the next day and the next day and then your your weekend's gone you you've got sunday barely to just like wake up and like do your laundry and you're not seeing your family or anything you're not prepping you're not getting a chance to look at assemblies of the edit um seeing what stuff you've missed or failed at or whatever um it just all adds up and um Without a doubt, I would always, I would just more days. <laughs> beg, borrow, and steal to get more days. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if I can, if I can help it, I'll never shoot less than thirty from now on. You know, like even twenty-five was pushing it. Yeah. Like I think for, and if you're making a movie like our movie, let's say a, a horror movie or something genre, I mean, I would say limit your scope and try to do things pra- as practically as possible. Um, Chris and I both, Chris more so than me, but have kind of 
we can do visual effects and we can do some comping and stuff like that. And, but we knew for the move for this movie, we wanted to be as practical as possible. So mm-hmm. we were always thinking like, what is the puppet we're going to build for this? Or what's yeah. the like practical effect that we're going to do? Um, because we've done, we've worked on enough stuff, maybe not our own stuff, but other people who are like, Hey, can't let's, we're just going to add this and then there'll be fire. And then this explosion. And then it's just like, man, we'll make it as good as we can, but it's, still not as good as if like you just did a different type of shot and shot it real because you're there with the DP and you're there in the real location. And it's like, they can make, you can make it look awesome in the lens. And if you can get it most of the way there and just like hit it up a little bit more. I mean, our, our kind of approach was certainly practical first. And Mm -hmm. then anything in the script that we knew was just a little beyond it. It was kind of written with like, this is 10 to 20% more than we naturally know how to do, you know? So we'll, I think we'll be able to stretch and reach and get there, but we never, you know, there's so many movies. Not a hundred percent. Not a hundred percent. Yeah. We were never like, there's a 50 foot tall creature that's fully, you know, and it's going to do, and it's like, well, we, we could try, but we know that's like 80% away from what we are comfortable doing. Right. And I've seen way too many of these movies where, you know, you get to the end and you're just like, God, that's a disappointment. Mm. And you know that the filmmakers are like, yeah, we just couldn't, we just couldn't do it. And they knew that in the writing stage, they knew they didn't know how to pull it off. They knew they wouldn't be able to, but they were kind of hoping like, but in the computer, Mm. we'll figure it out. Fix it in post. We'll figure out what it is. And for us, it's like, you know, we went in our creature, um, we always intended to be totally practical uh, effect, awesome. but at the end of it, we said, once we saw the footage and we were like, okay, cool. That creature could have used another couple of tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand dollars to really be what we wanted. So we had to CG enhance it a little mm-hmm. bit, but again, that was in that like 10 to 20% range where it's like, uh, I, I know we can replace this, or I know we can, right. or Chris knew he could like, play around with that and and figure out how to do it. But the whole time it was like, all right, let's really do it in camera as much as possible. So I would advise that because, you know, even if we went out with a non CG version of this movie, it'd be okay. (laughs) It wouldn't be what it is, but it'd be like, yeah, that's watchable. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I'd spend, and this is free, but you just got to put in the legwork is um, if it is like a horror movie, you know, like a, what you would expect with like kind of a set PC ending action ending. Um, do like animatic pre-shoot it, do everything you can to make sure that climax actually works. Right. And don't, don't count on it working out on the day because um, you'll forget something or yeah. it just won't, you know, and even in this movie I did, we, we actually, we drew, I drew it. we, I edited it, I pre-shot it, and I still feel like I didn't necessarily do enough um, to really get it to where I wanted it. I think it worked mm-hmm. out. Um, I think it's fine. Uh, I think people like it. Uh, but I, it, it's happened on every movie I've ever done. Like It's like I've never been like, you know what I did? Plenty. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> you, know, you know, like I totally nailed it. Um, and that's, and that's something you can do. Amount already, yeah. yeah. So and just prep, you can prep, do with, prep. Like yeah. really make that last. Anytime you've got like a thing where 
if the enjoyment of the movie is hinging on like this paying off or whatever that is at the end, like don't leave it to chance. Do it with action figures or if you can draw or if you can if you can use Unreal Engine or Cinema 4D or Blender or whatever. Like make as many versions of it as you can with the music and the editing. Like do it up so that it really, really works. Because not only will it you will you'll discover things you wouldn't have thought of in the just storyboarding or just trying to shoot it with with shot lists, but it will actually you can save time because if you know like yeah. oh you know I just need eight frames of somebody flailing their arm or whatever it's like <laughs> well maybe I can do that on a different day I don't right. need all my actor I don't even need my actor you know it could be anybody's arm or whatever that is there'll be ways that you can take the load off the that day which is going to be the most stressful day of the shoot because you've got whatever a monster or you're shooting a bucket of blood all over the place or all those things the more you can take off that and make sure that there's nothing left to chance uh the happier you'll be yeah Um, and speaking of buckets of blood (laughs) we discovered there's an amazing independent uh horror movie trick that you can do now that they make puddles of blood that look amazing that are just silicon silicone silicon so it's like a rubber mat oh brilliant like those, you just like throw it down. Remember, oh, like the fake I remember vomit, the fake vomit, they, yeah, and the fake like coffee those, spill on a CD and all yeah, that stuff, exactly. ice buy, creams. Yeah, you can go to people, or you can just have someone make it. Like these puddles of blood, and I just want it, them in it, my house now. Yeah, <laughs> you put them on the, the wall. Yeah, that sounds because cool. cleaning up, doing multiple takes of like a bloody scene is very time consumptive. Oh my <laughs> god! When I to, watch like Stuart Gordon movies now, and I watch like whatever castle freak or reanimator i'm like how the hell how do they do that like yeah. how is there always gore everywhere and it's like stains everything it's yeah. i mean our for our set when you see this movie and you're like oh look at this grungy set no one must have cared the floors were rented <laughs> <laughs> so like you couldn't let anything happen to the floor so yeah. con- if any viscera or any gore dropped or, there was always like what you don't see is all the tarps surrounding everything to make sure nothing touches the floor. And when you see like the Brian Usnas and stuff, you're like, how the hell? Yeah. You went into someone's house and just like. Dead alive the, is a the, big one. Or what's the yeah. society? What do you call it? The, the, the shunting. shunting. The shunting. Like, yeah. you guys baby oiled an entire house? Like, what did you. <laughs> just lube the place and it up. Takes, what did anyone do it? I mean, even if money was no object, it's takes a lot of time to clean it up and do a yeah. second take and oh this, God, these things were so it. we have this scene where she's puking like for an hour <laughs> just like just like throwing up like crazy and so we just like threw down one of these mats and she's like spitting all the stuff on the rubber mat and then we just pick up the mat and pour it off and but then it looks like there's like this huge pile of of gore um it's it, they were the best thing i was like yeah. what is this a new invention because if this person should be rich, but I don't think they're rich. But and I think they're Brilliant. easy to make. Like if you know how to mix up um, silicon, you know you just mm-hmm. you just mix it up with a red food coloring, the right and, then you, color, yeah. and then you pour it, and then you let it harden, and then. Yeah. But it's like, I mean, they're translucent. They look so real, and they come in different sizes, and it's it's the best. You no, just, that's a great tip. It's a great um, tip. Because then we would shoot. This podcast we would, brought to you by bloodgas.com. Yeah, <laughs> Because sometimes there's a shot, you know, there's like the money shot where it's like, well, we really need to see just stuff 
splattering everywhere yeah. in this shot. You wait till the end to shoot that, but you shoot the other coverage earlier with the fake blood so you can clean it up. You know, oh, and you smart. just tail out your day on the like ruining everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. When uh, when but, Fidi Alvarez did that Evil Dead remake, that was all practical. Oh, yeah. And that's why that movie is so visceral. And I mean, it's yeah. So I, good. So good. But he, they had to, they fucked that kitchen up again and again. They had to I keep know. washing it and do another take. And the like, money all goes into like Swiffers. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. I mean, those <laughs> are days it, like, that's days, you know, on set yeah. where it's like, yes. cool, bring in 10 people. They're going to clean it all up. They got to dry everything out. They you gotta need to drain all the floor. The, you got to tra- yeah. change your wardrobe. You got to redo all their makeup. You got to dry their hair. You got to, it's it like, is. that's just time, you know, yeah. and time is money. I think those were like for us or for me anyway, I don't know about you, Chris, but like those were some of the more, I mean, they were fun because there were movie magic days where it's like, look at all the gore and stuff, but they were also super stressful because like, like our psychic surgery scene where there's blood all over the place and there's a huge prosthetic and the, the floor is getting messed up and the prosthetic can only take so much and all that stuff. You're just like, oh, my God, this is like we get like one shot to do there or a couple of takes to do this before it's all going to fall apart because now all the blood is staining this thing and that thing. And now nothing's going to match anymore and we can't afford to <laughs> change the wardrobe out and stop down. It's like. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Now, as much as a pet peeve of mine, CGI blood is, I get it. I get why people do it. I can always tell, but I get yeah. why people do it. Yeah. 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 We, uh, oh, do we have any in ours? I don't know. Um, okay. we, Maybe one shot. Really. We have like a little bit of an enhancement. I mean, again, like everything is, it was all done practically first. And then it's like, if we could just goose it a little bit, then it's like, there was okay. one time we had to paint out the guys. Cause we just had the guy stick his hand in the shot with them, like a, like a, a square bottle. bottle or <laughs> we're like, we got to remove his hand now. We had to yeah, squirt so it up. But. Painted his hand out, which was not easy. But then the squirt of blood, like coming up from her stomach, we painted it the downstream out. So it's just the upstream, and it's like, oh, oh that's cool looking. That's yeah. Awesome. It's easier to sometimes to remove stuff than to add stuff. <laughs> yeah. And we learned that from Robert Rodriguez from his what was that thing he called it? The splat yeah, gun, the, or the the gore cannon or whatever. Yeah. Do you know about what that? was that on Nick? Planet Terror? No, he did it so first on Desperado, like, and then he did it. I mean, he did it first on El Mariachi, and El then he Mariachi. did it on Desperado as well. Where basically, instead of having like a squib instead go of off squ- on someone's face, like their whole face explode, he would like shoot like air pressurized gore at their like face, a, hmm. a tube of of gore, and he would like the water, you know, mm-hmm. with like a plunger, yeah. and you just go. Bruh. So yeah. it was like a imagine just like a gob of spaghetti hitting you in the face, right? Yep. But then editorially, he'd remove the two frames of it traveling to your face, so all you would see is a normal face, and then immediately <laughs> like like all oh, the wow. spaghetti off your bouncing. face. Yeah. So that's something and like if you had to make a prosthetic of Quentin Tarantino's head and do a squib to explode it, that would be like an enormous thing. Whereas he would just throw spaghetti at your face well not spaghetti but and, and then, putting pyrotechnics on somebody's face isn't like the most yeah, it's like you can't <laughs> do that but but if you just remove the couple of frames and it's like oh man that's awesome yeah Smart. and you can just All you're seeing it. is the reaction is that one of those 15 minute film out. schools uh yeah we, you know what i we think were we like, read rebel without a crew yeah we probably yeah, described so it there um we were hugely uh, this podcast is now three hours long i apologize no it, please it's um, the more the merrier but we were huge huge fans yeah. of robert rodriguez and just that because like, that came out when we were like freshmen and i mean the that book came out when we were freshmen in college oh wow I perfect was in, time 
and I was in film school and I was like, I read that I was, it was my summer job between freshman and sophomore year. And I was like, I might quit school. <laughs> Go make and that's why we made, we did make a movie in college because of that. Oh, oh wow. Just my knock my microphone over. Super cheap. Um, because he was like, yeah, just go make three terrible movies and throw them away. <laughs> right. So we took that advice a little bit. But, yeah, he's, there's a lot of little, you yeah. know, gorilla nuggets in there. Yeah. Oh, I love that stuff. You know, I mean, that's the really – that's the fun of indie filmmaking is, like, finding the really smart – I mean, that's, like, the shaky cam from, you know, Sam Raimi or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, all those, like, super smart – economical ways to do the things that the big dogs are doing. Yeah. And you're just like, okay, let's execute this on the level that we can and just put sweat equity into for us nowadays, it's more sweat equity into the post where it's like, okay, well we can stabilize the shot later or we can remove these things. And that's how we're going to do the, sh the impossible shot where yeah. we can't, you know, always rent the equipment or whatever. And you just have to focus on that. But like, that's those, that's all the fun stuff, man. Yeah. The ingenuity the of that stuff. movie magic and having to invent ways of doing things less expensively. Yeah. yeah there's the real yeah. fun to be had it, there. It taps into your kind of puzzle, puzzle loving brain, you know? That yeah. And I think it, for, makes it fun. When you see a movie at our level, you know, when you see an indie movie like the old ways, and there's like something really remarkable that happens visually. I don't know. Like we have a sequence where somebody kind of levitates for a moment and it's like done to the best of our abilities. And it's fun to see that we've only seen it with an audience a couple of times, but you can feel an energy shift because they're like, I was not expecting this <laughs> level of whatever this is. Yeah. And certainly that's the fun of like an indie horror movie where you don't know how far the filmmaker is going to go. You know, mm -hmm. you don't know if they're going to like really mess your brain up like Ari Aster or like, you know, Dario Argento would or yeah. Stuart Gordon would, you know, like you don't know what you're in for because there are no rules and there are no guideposts when you get into an indie movie. You know, it hasn't gone through like a marketing team at right. a you know, All bets studio are off. who's like, uh, you're going to, testing says people hate this sequence. Right. And for us, testing was like, all right, we'll watch it and we'll watch it with some friends. And if they're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Then, you know, we'll you know, go with it. And that's why that scene, um, the, one of the scariest scenes for me ever was not even a horror movie. It was uh Pulp Fiction where they were about to plunge oh, yeah. the, the adrenaline in, into uh, the chest. And I was a big Tarantino fan at the time. And, and you're like, what like, is well, this going to be? He's mm -hmm. not, above cutting someone's ear off <laughs> like i don't know what yeah, this, this could gonna... go into their eyeball <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's gonna happen yeah. yeah i was really stressed out during that scene and then it was just a regular like plunger whatever yeah to scene, this but... day every time i see that scene and i've seen it a hundred times but the tension of that moment was like one two and then it just never lets up every time one of your listeners has to take cross cut that scene from like that and then the scene from the thing where the hands go into the chest and that's what i want to see <laughs> yeah. that combo that would be awesome that would the be the two scariest cool. chest sequences yeah that would be a great mashup yeah well he said yeah. that uh, hateful eight was mostly inspired by the thing in terms of just like tension and yep. paranoia oh and yeah all that. i when can think about that. it yeah there's there's a lot of that there yeah yeah, that's Leave funny. It. That's it. Yeah. Like, who do you trust and who's the, you know. Who's the real monster, all of that. Who's the real yeah. monster. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, this was this was so cool. I think before we wrap up, I have to show you my death whistle. Hang on one sec. Yeah, please. <laughs> oh, let's yeah. play it and let's hear it. Play us out. I have a non-functioning one. Yeah. 
I don't think it'll be visually exciting for the podcast listeners. No. If we zoom in, can we steal whatever movie you're writing back there? What's that? Yeah, Act Three looks a little thin. Yeah, it's say. a little thin. <laughs> it's a little. Uh, it's a little light. Yeah, yeah. I got. I got. I got my scenes on the side, and I'm trying to figure out where I to can, put them. One of the sequences in of... Act Three just says credits, and I don't know if that counts as a scene. <laughs> Do I have no? I don't have credits. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Fade that out one says one like it just says Avengers style uh, twist. Coda, yeah, superhero landing. Coda, Coda scene um, with Sam Jackson. Yeah, with Sam yeah. Jackson. Yeah, That's <laughs> good idea. I yeah, this one's uh, this one needs a little work, a little act in progress. Yeah, I think right. I might. Uh, I think I might start a collection Ooh. of these. They're so. Cool. Can you play it? Yeah. Ah! Oh, it just shattered the. Yeah, your oh, the decibel you must have gone it. through. No, it started, yeah. and then your limiter must have like killed it. Oh, really? Yeah. Try it again. I All just right. I'll go a little lower. And it dies right afterwards. That's really amazing. yeah. That's yeah. amazing. That's how serious I mean, your, the death whistle is. Your mic, your your other mic might be fine, but oh, it might know. be. Yeah, the frequency of it. I'm sure the mics just can't handle. Oh, it's cool because it, it starts like a scream, and then it's just like yeah. Like you that's can tell the microphone's one. like that's not a human sound. No, Kill it's, it's the sound of like death. That's a good yeah. one. That's yeah, a really yeah. good one. Well, yeah. You've seen this one. I mean, the, your podcast listeners, please edit all this out. But this is Theater our non-functioning. Of the mind. Oh, that's one. cool. Was that the one from the movie? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So, oh, you guys should uh, like sell those or do some promotional. And then 3D printed in this incredible. And then also finished with uh, different material on top. It's but, really cool. It's like your own kind of Pazuzu, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah we had our it's iconic. friend of ours. A friend of ours sculpted it in, in ZBrush, and then he has his own 3D printer. He printed it out, and then Derek, our art, um, our yeah, prop guy, he, like he dunk molded it or whatever you call it, and made like three or four of them and painted them up and everything because they're bound to get dropped and broken. But yeah, uh, that's, that's awesome. The, dude. That's I'm the so only reason. That's why you make yeah. movies, man, is to get get to keep the props. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, that's a cool. Can one. we re-edit that other part? The reason where you put the money into props because that's the cool stuff. Like after you yeah. need to put them on your shelf. Yeah, it's fun to like make stuff and then keep it. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Like that's the that's the stuff, man. Yeah. Like anytime you go to like a Hollywood production office and you're like, where was I? Oh, John, Jim, John, who's the producer of? Um, he was one of the producers of Bill Silver predator no oh, he, oh john even at, davis I, I went to, john davis yeah. davis he i went to a meeting in his office and he had a full-size predator I oh was like, wow this is awesome <laughs> yeah. have you Probably. ever uh, do you know tom and alec from adi from studio adi amalgamated mm. dynamics they, oh i know oh uh well they, t justin they, ross knows them, yeah obviously. oh they and um mortuary. yeah ryan spindell worked with alec yeah on the mortuary, mortuary collection mm-hmm. yeah, yeah they're they like March. one of the biggest practical effects companies yeah. in california they do all the stuff for godzilla yeah. versus kong and jurassic park like they do the big stuff the stand winston yeah. level stuff um, we shot their little babies at our stage the little the burned baby things from mortuary, from mortuary yeah. oh that's cool that's really cool their office very... is insane you go into their like, conference is... rooms they have all the wall paneling from some from like alien resurrection yeah. up there. oh and they have they did the original tremors i think they did, they did i think the they have one of the tw- i think the they have one of the tremors up there yeah yeah. yeah, those guys are great, man. That is like the movie uh, for me. That's like the old uh, for the for our movie. We went with um, Josh and Sierra Russell and uh, Russell Effects, and it's incredible. Like their their studio is not too far from our stage, and 
just going over there and checking it, just looking on the walls and you're like, dude, this is what, I mean, it yeah. looks like your backdrop, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just like, Oh my God, there's that head from that thing. And there's yeah. that body from that thing. And there's a bat, you know, whatever. There's just so many cool. Yeah. Yeah. We could walk, we could walk there at lunch and, you know, see the progress on the demon and all that stuff. Was, I was uh, at uh, Tom Holland's house, Tom Holland, the director, not Spider-Man, but the director of yeah. Fright Night. And um, mm-hmm. he's got all of the old Fright Night stuff. He's got the huge bat and it's enormous. It's That's got like cool. an eight foot wingspan and he's got it framed. He's got it in a box <laughs> preserved. Um, and he's got Jerry Dandridge's skull. He's just all of his old, he's got stuff from Thinner, which he also directed. He's got the original oh. Child's Play, Chucky Doll. Oh. It's all just hanging around his house. He's like, my wife objects, but I like having all this stuff. <laughs> I know. It's so cool. It's so awesome. cool to see all that stuff. Yeah. Well, guys, this right. uh, this was this was so much fun. Thank you again. Any um, Any parting advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Yeah. Um, don't. Don't shoot your first scene first, ever. <laughs> I tell everybody that. It always is the worst. The first thing you shoot is the worst thing you shoot. So shoot it later because you don't want that to be your first scene in your movie. <laughs> Some crappy thing where nobody knows how to pull focus yet or whatever. But, um, <laughs> uh, like and then my tip. piece of advice, I guess, is just like, just do the thing you think is cool because you have to live with it. Now, like, Not only do you have to write it, which takes months, um, but then you have to live with it and shoot it and and defend it to mm-hmm. everyone and fight with everyone in the universe about making it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think our first movie we made in college, we did because we were like, hey, there's some crappy direct-to-video movies at Blockbuster. I think we can make one of those. And uh, we weren't thinking like, all right, let's make a movie that we like will fight for. So yeah. for the next you know. four years of our lives. Yeah. I mean, I work on this movie every day. I mean, to this day. We- <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we started shooting it January of or January, February of 2020, mm-hmm. and I, it's still every day, you know. Yeah. And we prepped before that, and we wrote it before that, so it's it's a it's a it's a commitment. Um, so you better you know like what? it. <laughs> you better like it, and you better believe in it. And you have to be a force of nature to make a movie at an independent level. Like nobody is going to will, and like everyone will. Look, we have lots of friends and screenwriter friends and movie maker friends. And I would say most of them were like, I don't know about this movie guys," (laughs) before we made it. And then afterwards, they're like, I don't know how you did it. Like, it didn't make sense that this movie would make any, you know, would work at all. Mm -hmm. And but we believed in it. We believed in ourselves. And, you know, you're going to you have to be your own like force of nature. Like there are everyone will tell you no and you if you really love it and you really want to do it just keep fighting for it and to do yeah, it yeah i feel like but if they're huge. all telling you the same no then maybe yeah. they're right <laughs> then yeah. they might be, that's yeah. the that's the like if they all just line. say you don't know how to write <laughs> then maybe yeah. you know if, if it's just somebody, a bunch of random naysayers that's one thing but if they're right. all naysaying a, the same nay i forget who i heard say this but somebody somebody big like said this where it was like you can be said, people can tell you no, but as long as they're telling you no, but they're also like, but it's pretty good. It's just no, like this isn't great, but it's really good. Then right. like, that should be enough encouragement. But if you just keep hearing like, no, it's not working. No, I don't like it. No, it's bad. And that keeps happening to you. Then maybe like try something else. Back to the drawing board <laughs> after that. Like yeah. Enough people have to also be encouraging you at the bottom level that you're like, okay, all right. I think it's still okay. It's just not for everyone yet. Yeah. No, that makes sense. 
Well, I forgot to ask also, with the amount of mythology that's in this movie, any chance of a sequel or any sort of conjuring universe you guys are cooking up? Yeah. Or is that we would, we would love now? for that. I mean, we've already broken the story on some follow up stuff, but it's really, you know, at this level, it's like the audience has to show up yeah. and, you know, make it a, a, a foregone conclusion that we got to do this. So. If they do, you know, uh, it should be out right now on Netflix. Um, if it yep. performs well in the first, you know, three, four weeks, apparently that's the, like, the sweet spot for Netflix and mm-hmm. not we're used to, like, the, the opening weekend type stuff that you are with theatrical stuff. So, you know, if it blows up and they, they'll, they'll probably call us up and say, you want to do another? Because, you yeah. know, uh, but if it doesn't. <laughs> no, um, it's gotta we, it's gotta perform. That's the yeah. gamble you take when you you kind of make your own indie movies. But yeah, certainly if there's an audience out there, I think there is. I yeah, hope there is. Sure, if there's an sure. audience for it, then we would love to keep exploring this universe. That yeah. was yeah, you know. I feel like we barely scratched the surface with Mexican folk horror. There's so much more. Yeah. You look at yeah, older Mexican horror movies, like there's there's so much to be, so much oh, more yeah. to be explored. So, it's a very big place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of history. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's guys, thank you again. Cool. This was so much fun. And congrats on the movie. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And I actually am really looking forward to seeing it again. There's so much in there. There's so many layers to it. I feel like I, I didn't catch it all the first go around. So, uh, yeah. Really psyched to see it a we, second time. And congrats we again. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Of course. All right. As always, here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Marcos and Chris. Number one, lead your movie with fresh takes on tired concepts. It's very difficult to do anything truly unique in the horror space these days. Zombies have been done to death, as have vampires, ghosts, witches, and definitely demonic possession. But what we haven't seen, or at least I haven't seen, is an exorcism movie based on ancient Mexican tradition. That is completely new, and one of the reasons Marcos' script for the old ways feels so fresh. Despite the fact that all of these genres have become so exhausted, it doesn't mean fans don't want more movies. They just don't want the same homogenized storylines that have become cliché. If you're approaching a well-trodden path like a zombie, werewolf, vampire movie, make sure you put a completely new and different spin on it, either culturally or socially. For other great examples of this, check out The Vigil, The Boys of County Hell, His House, or Atlantics, all of which are awesome watches. Number two, lean into folk horror. Just about every culture has a treasure trove of supernatural mythology, but sadly, there really aren't many folk horror movies out there. When writing The Old Ways, Marcos drew upon a ton of history and mythology from the Mexican culture, all of which culminated to make The Old Ways not only unique, but resonant. There's something naturally more believable about mythological archetypes and real folklore in horror movies. It somehow feels familiar to people. Whether it's because these stories are in the collective unconscious or just really, really cool is anybody's guess. But when integrated properly, they have a grounding effect on the movie, which makes it more believable and therefore more compelling. Dig into mythology and folklore to discover your own unique horror concepts. Number three. Time on set is your most valuable currency. Budget accordingly. When it comes to good filmmaking, things take time. 
getting that great performance, lighting that killer shot, or perfecting that practical effects gag so it's just right. All of these things take time to do right, which is why it's critical to make sure you have enough time on set. Indie filmmakers are typically in a constant rush against the clock, but budgeting more time on set means you can take the time to do things right, because good things always take time. Chris articulated this beautifully when he made the comparison between footage versus cinema. Footage can be done instantly and on a strict schedule, but cinema, the real art of film as a language, takes time. One way to save time that Chris recommended is to pre-visualize and literally pre-shoot your scenes through simulations so that you can work out the kinks ahead of time. You can do this with something sophisticated like Maya or the Unreal Engine like Chris does or with something as simple as action figures. Doing these shot rehearsals can really help advise what you need to get on the day in ways that storyboards just can't. Ultimately, this saves you a lot of time on set, which as we discussed, is your greatest currency. Number four, your cast and crew need their rest to do their best. Chris recommends five-day weeks instead of six-day weeks. According to him, you should always opt for more days on set and skimp everywhere else. Consider this when budgeting your movie. Do you really need trailers? Do you really need eight costume changes? Can you sacrifice two characters for an extra three days on set? Whatever it takes, it's worth it to maximize your production time. Now, admittedly, this may run counter to the Roger Corman hustle ethic of filmmaking, but so be it. There's definitely a little bit of an over-romanticization of hustle culture in filmmaking. Shooting till 4 a.m., your crew hating you, and yes, sometimes that's exactly what you have to do and what happens. But if you're in a position to avoid that, Avoid it, because rested and happier crews ultimately make better movies. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Hey guys, one last thing before you head out. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out my 10 by 10 horror watch list. How would you like a list of the 10 favorite horror movies of 10 of your favorite horror directors? Well, I just hooked your ass up. The 10 by 10 horror watch list features a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors, including Ari Aster, James Gunn, Quentin Tarantino, Jordan Peele, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more, all in an easy to reference PDF. You can download this guide for free as my gift to my dear listeners at nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. Check it out and let me know what you think. 